So I want to tell you about two tragic events that happened in 2012. I want to tell you about two different stories. Both of these were really horrible moments in history. In 2012, of, uh, excuse me, in January 2012, um, the Costa Concordia cruise ship uh, kind of hit a skid of rocks off the coast of Italy, and as you can see, things did not go well for the people on the Costa Concordia. There was a woman who survived this tragedy, and she gave this account about what it was like on the ship as it was sinking. As she waited for a flight home from Rome, grandmother Sandra Rogers, 62, told the Daily Mail, there was no women and children first policy. There were big men, crew members, pushing their way past us to get into the lifeboats. It was disgusting. I want everyone to know how badly some people behaved. It was a nightmare. I lost my daughter and my grandchildren in the chaos. I was standing by the lifeboats and men, big men, were banging into me and knocking the girls down. It was awful. There was a total lack of organization. There was no one telling people where to go. And when we finally got into a lifeboat, people, grown men, were trying to jump into the boat. I thought if they land in here, we are going to capsize. What you might be thinking if I jumped into a boat you were in. Next story. July 2012, Aurora, Colorado. A disgruntled young man who just absolutely uh, lost his mind in a moment of pure rage, walked into a movie theater and started shooting during a midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises. Here's an account of what happened inside that movie theater. 25-year-old John Blunk was sitting next to his girlfriend, Jansen Young, at the midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises when the gunman opened fire in the dark theater. Blunk instinctive, instinctively pushed his girlfriend to the ground and threw his body on top of hers. Blunk, a security guard, served five years in the Navy and was in the process of re-enlisting in hopes of becoming a Navy SEAL. He was killed in the gunfire. His girlfriend survived. 24-year-old Alex Tevis dived on top of his girlfriend Amanda when the gunfire erupted. Covering her body, he took the bullets so that they did not harm her. She survived the massacre. He did not. Matt McQuinn, 27 years old, threw his body in front of his girlfriend, Samantha, as the shooting continued. Yowler survived with a gunshot wound to the knee. McQuinn's body absorbed the fatal shots. Okay, class. Which group of males acted like men? The guys on the boat or the guys in the theater? Does anyone vote for manliness happening on the boat? No, you don't. I believe most of us are somewhat disgusted, and I say most of us because some of you might disagree. This is subjective what you think about this. But I think most of us are somewhat disgusted by the actions of the males on the cruise ship and somewhat inspired by the men who gave their lives to protect their girlfriends. I want to say something, and I don't mean to be crude. Having male anatomy doesn't make you a man. On a Thursday morning... I got up early to go to the gym, and Olivia got up earlier than me because she's spiritual because she always likes to watch TV, and Olivia's always up before everyone in her home. Olivia's three. She's my daughter, and she comes in our room about four times during the night, and it's awesome, 
And so I got up and I went downstairs on Thursday morning and she was really excited. She had her chocolate milk and she said, you know, I want to watch Just In Time. I don't, I don't know if you know the show Just In Time. It's a kid's show. And as I'm turning on Just In Time, she says to me, Dad, is Squidgy a boy or a girl? And I'm like, I, I think Squidgy's more of an it. Squidgy looks like a golden gram. That's what Squidgy looks like. He has a box body and arms and legs. And I'm not sure whether he's male or female. And I said, I don't know, Olivia. I think Squidgy is an it. And then Olivia said this statement to me. Dad, boys have peanuts and girls have vaginas. And I said, you're right, Olivia. And then she started to go through the members of our family, identifying who we were by those parts. As much as I love and treasure my son Joseph just because he has a peanut, doesn't make him a man. Last week, we said that men and women are made in the image of God, and therefore they are equal in their significance and value before God as human beings. Today, I want to talk to you about God's unique design for men. Specifically, I want to lovingly, carefully, and truthfully, and graciously make a case for the idea, which I believe is biblical, of something called male headship. I would encourage you not to tune me out yet. Just listen to the whole argument, and you can choose to disagree with me and God when it's over if you want to. Definition of headship is this. I got this from a guy named Ray Ortland Jr., not original with me. This is what I believe male headship is. I love this definition. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. So this is what I believe God has placed on every man who is married. And if you're like, I'm single, this message doesn't apply to me, I think I'm going to go home. Single men, I, I want to say something to you at the end of the message, so don't lose me. And women, I want you to hear what a godly man looks like and how God has uniquely wired men. The model of headship that men are to pattern themselves after is Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church and gave himself for us. This gives zero license for male domination. No man is authorized to mistreat, domineer, steamroll, belittle, ignore, or demean his wife by not valuing the image of God in her. Let me just be very clear about what the Bible does not teach about the relationship between men and women, specifically in relationship to what women can't do. The Bible does not teach that women don't have any leadership abilities. I know some women, and I, I know some women in this church, they're awesome leaders. I'm not saying women can't lead. I'm also not saying men are always right, and that's obvious to all of us. I'm also not saying that women are inferior to men. Here's the big lie in our culture. If you say men and women are different, that means that you mean women are inferior to men. Just logically think this out with me. Why does it have to be true if I say God created men and, different, men and women differently with different roles? Why does it then have to be true to say, well, if they have different rules and different design and different purpose, are women inferior to men? Like, does that have to be true? Maybe they're just different. A logical possibility. It also doesn't mean that men get to make all the decisions. I was actually thinking on my way here this morning about some decisions I made that if I would have listened more closely to Cheryl, we wouldn't be in some of the same predicaments we find ourselves in today. 
Like there are some things that I should have been listening to her about. So male headship does not mean I'm the man, I'm all-knowing, I'm infallible, and you must listen to me, wife, and you're just going to be just fine. Go over there and cook me breakfast. That's not it at all. The Bible does not teach that women exist to meet the whims and desires of men. The Bible does not teach that all women are under the authority of all men. Praise Jesus. The Bible does not teach that women are free from responsibility and accountability. So what are we saying this morning? That in a marriage, the man has the primary responsibility of leading the family in a God-glorifying direction. So let me show you why I believe in the story of creation, God has uniquely designed men to be the head in a marriage. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. I want to just acknowledge this morning that when you look at the story of creation, there is an obvious paradox. Genesis 1 teaches the equality of the sexes as God's image bearers. We talked about that last week. Men, women, equally spiritual, made in the image of God. Both of us called to be vice rulers on the earth. God gave that to men and women, created in God's image, and he called us to rule together. And yet, Genesis 2 adds another complex dimension to God's design in creating us male and female. Let's see if we can discover that complex dimension in our maleness and femaleness in this story. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So do you know how, if you've been in church for a while, you know how um, the Gospels are the same story about the same guy, just from different perspectives? Do you know how there's all about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And do you know how all the stories don't have all of the same details about Jesus, but through the four Gospels, we get a complete picture of who Jesus is, or at least the picture God wanted us to have? It's the same thing with Genesis 1 and 2. This is the same accounting, just from a different perspective, highlighting different points of the story. So Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, both about creation. Genesis 2 highlighting different things than Genesis 1. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Men were all supposed to be farmers. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's skip down to verse 15. Verses 10 through 14 are about four rivers. You can read about that on your own time. The Lord God took the man. So... God needed someone to work the ground, and so he created a man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Notice this. Before sin enters the world, work is a good thing. It may feel like your job is a result of sin, but work is actually part of your makeup. You were designed to work. It's a good and godly thing, and therefore your work has eternal value to God for certain. And the Lord God commanded the man, 
Here's what God said to the man. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God has one rule. Don't eat from that tree. One rule. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Amen. I will make a helper suitable for him. So here's what God sees. I've made creation. Everything I've made is good. That's the refrain of Genesis chapter 1. And yet, when God sees this man, this perfect man, even the perfect man needs help. Amen. He says, that guy needs a helper. So men, you need help. Now the Lord God had formed out of, all, out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Where's the woman? Where's the helper? Oh, here it is. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So why did God parade all the animals in front of Adam to help him to see them and name them? Why did God do that? Because he wanted the light bulb to go on for Adam so that Adam would say, hey, that horse is cool, but I don't think I want to spend my life with her. All right? Like God wanted Adam to see in all of created order, everything that was created up to this point, these are great animals, but we're not going to build a home together. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And then the man starts singing. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Here's your life verse, guys. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Church is good. Seven observations in this text, theologically observing what the Bible is saying that I believe point to male headship. You don't have these on your notes. You'll have to write them down if you want to know them. Seven observations that point to male headship. Number one, the man was created first. You're like, that's not very compelling, Joe. I'll keep going. The man was created first. Secondly, the man was given the responsibility to work and care for the garden. Thirdly, God gave the, com the man the command not to eat. So who became morally accountable in the creation story to let his woman know this is what God says and this is what God desires? the man. Number four, God calls the woman a suitable helper. So out of all of creation, only the woman was suitable for the man. She alone was his equal. That's what Adam is saying when he sees the woman. He says, this, finally, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Finally, someone who looks similar to me and someone who's not walking on all fours and I don't know if that zebra would be a good cook but here is a woman and Adam starts singing when he sees her I don't, and he says flesh of my flesh and you know what's interesting about that when he says flesh of my flesh when the Bible says that a man and woman 
when they have sex, there's a one flesh union. Okay, that one fleshness is not just about the sexual coming together of a husband and a wife. That one flesh is not only that, it's also saying a bigger reality than just we're together sexually. It's also saying that woman was taken from the side of man and they're suitable for one another. But see, God doesn't just call the woman suitable. He calls her a helper. Not his slave, not his servant, not his maid, not his cook, but his helper. So I would just clearly say that because the woman is called helper, this absolutely implies differences in the design of men and women. Now, you need to know this. There are many times in the Old Testament where God himself is identified as a helper. So think of it this way. Some people think, oh, helper, that's so derogatory and archaic. If you, I'll just use this illustration. There are times when Joseph comes home with his homework and he needs help with his homework. Does Cheryl become an inferior person when she sits down with Joseph and helps him with his math homework? No. Does Cheryl cease to be his mother? Does she lose value and worth? In the same way, when God helps us, does he stop being God? Does he lose his value and his character and his worth? No, he doesn't. Helper implies that the woman would come alongside the man in his quest to live life for the glory of God. Helper does not mean lowly. It means assistant. It means helpmeet, as the King James says it. And at least in the Bible, differences in purpose does not equal diminished value. Fifth reason, the woman was created from the man. God didn't take, he made Adam from the dust and breathed life into him. But when he wanted to make a woman, he didn't do, uh, he didn't do like a separate race. He made Eve from the side of Adam. Number six, the man named the woman. And the commentators say that, a lot of them say, this is a great example of male headship. Just like God had given the man the freedom to name the animals as he exercises his dominion of creation, he extends this to him in the naming of his helper. However, he gives her the name woman as he recognizes her as his counterpart. And the final reason, the man is called to leave his family. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, does that mean that it's the role of a man to move in with his in-laws? Praise Jesus, no. Let's just be real in the house of God this morning. No man is saying, that's really what I want to do, and hopefully you can't go to your prospective spouse and say, and she says, well, listen, you have to leave your family, but we're going to stay right here in my old bedroom. Don't do that. That's not at all what the text is saying. What I think it's saying is is the man is the one who takes the initiative to start the new family. He takes responsibility for the formation of the family. I want to say this this morning because I think this is a misnomer in our, our culture. A family is not a husband and wife with children. A family begins with a man and a woman covenanting their lives together forever. You don't need to have kids to have a family. And yes, we have to freely acknowledge here this morning that some families are fractured. And what once was a husband and a wife, divorce or death, has fractured it. But the man is called to leave his family. 
I would concede that any one of these things on their own maybe wouldn't make a compelling case for male headship. But taken together, it becomes obvious that God has mandated men to lead their wives for the glory of God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as men, what does that look like for men to lead their families, to act as head, to say, this is what every man should be saying, it is my primary responsibility to lead this family in a God-glorifying direction. Let's go to Ephesians 5. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning. Ephesians 5. We'll start in verse 22. This is usually the passage where all the women roll their eyes, at least in the first three verses. When I do a wedding and I put this scripture verse in my wedding manuscript, I have had couples ask me in the past, don't say that. It was more of a command than a question. We don't want you to say in front of all of our family and friends, wives, submit to your husbands. And I'll be honest, if these people don't love Jesus, I do weddings for people who don't love Jesus, they're not Christians, I don't mind taking it out. But when people say we love Jesus, nine times out of ten, we want to include these verses. They're very instructive to God's design for how a marriage is supposed to function. But let's explore these words because taking them at face value, you can go a lot of different places and this is not a license to abuse anyone and I want to just really clear that up this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So notice that the husband is called the head of the wife, just as Jesus is called the head of the church. Paul's logic here is easy to follow. Just like the church submits to Jesus, wives are called to submit to their husbands. So listen, do you feel like an inferior person because you're a follower of Jesus and God has asked you to submit to the leadership of Jesus? That's the logic. If you can answer that question like, no, I don't feel inferior if someone asks me to submit my life to Jesus. I actually feel free. I feel loved. Man, if I look at Jesus and I see all he's done for me, I want to give my life away to that guy. Here's an interesting thing. The word submit is the Greek word hupotasso. It's a military word that means to place yourself under someone else's authority. But it's voluntary. Submission is meant to be a voluntary, willing thing done by a wife for her husband. Just like at Spring Valley Community Church, when you become a partner, we ask you to submit hupotasso to the elders of this church. No one's making you do that. It's voluntary. But there's wisdom in having spiritual authority in your life. Submission is not about inferiority. It's not about getting steamrolled by your husband. And it's not about not thinking for yourself. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts to affirm her husband's leadership. It doesn't mean she never challenges it. It doesn't mean she never says, honey, I don't think this is a good move. It means that she is willing to say, in this family, my husband has primary responsibility to lead us in a God-glorifying direction. And this is a good thing. 
according to God. It is good to say, as a woman, I want my husband to lead. I told you the series would be controversial. That's controversial. It is a good and godly thing for a wife to say, I want my husband to lead. Now, let's be honest about something. It is a tragic thing for a woman to be abused, hurt, manipulated, mistreated by an ungodly husband. It is a wicked thing for a man to point to this verse and say, do what I tell you. You're totally missing the heart of headship. How do I know? Because Ephesians 25 through 30 tells us what headship is supposed to look like as a husband. So when women go on women's retreats, it's usually something like really positive and upbeat and uplifting. And when men go away, it's usually like, guys, bring your cup where you're going to get yelled at. Because this is going to be a moment where we would just want to challenge men to be men. I'm not going to yell at you this morning. But I want to challenge men to be men this morning. I want to challenge men to step up to the plate and be the head of their home, not defined by machismo and weightlifting and hunting and how far you can hit a baseball and how hard you can throw one, how much you can bench press or how much you can squat, how big your muscles are. That's not manhood. A lot of that stuff is actually compensating for real manhood if men don't know their own strength and what they're actually called to do. Am I saying it's wrong to hunt? No, don't misquote me. But sometimes we want to feel like a man, so we run to things instead of doing the real manly thing, which is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because they're one. They're one flesh. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. How men live out headship, number one, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Men, Here's what your life is supposed to look like. Jesus Christ is described as the one who gave himself up. These are the words alluding to the bloody death of Jesus when he hung naked on a cross with spikes through his hands and feet and a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus gave his life so that we can be holy, clean, without stain or blemish and blameless in his sight. And men, this is your call to headship. It's not strutting around like you're in charge, huffing and puffing and grunting. It's death. Headship is marked by death. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he puts headship this way. I love this definition. He says, this headship, then, is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. Some guys are like, yeah, I know what he's talking about. 
Whose wife receives most and gives least? Let's stop there. Dudes, just be really honest with me for a moment. I'll, I'll answer with you in my head and in my heart. Who's the biggest giver at your house? Who wrestles with selfishness the most? You or your wife? I'm winning at being selfish. I've got a corner on that market. Whose wife receives most and gives least is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable. For the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. So what makes Spring Valley beautiful? It's not our spiritual passion. It's Christ himself. For the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes her lovely. Men, are you making your wives more lovely? Is she thriving as a woman of God under your leadership? The love you have for your wife is not defined by the feelings you have for her, and it is good to feel things for your wife. I was thinking about it this morning as I was practicing my message. I preach it in the youth room by myself on Sunday mornings. If you ever want to come early, you can. It'll just be awkward because it'll be me and you. But I'll preach you the best I've got. And I was thinking about my, my Cheryl. Man, I love that woman more today than I did on July 26th, 2003. Man, I look at that woman and I just think, God has been way too good for me. Way too good to me. And I feel things for her that I didn't feel when I was a 21-year-old punk when we got married. And I appreciate things about her that I didn't see or couldn't see when I was pretty much a boy, when I said I do. But actually, that doesn't define my love for her, those feelings. All of us who have been married longer than 20 minutes know that we feel different things at different points in our marriage, men. But your love is not defined by your feelings, though your feelings for her are good. Rather, your love for her is defined by your willingness to sacrifice your life for her good. Men, whether you're married or single, the goal of your life should be to die to yourself. The reason men run from their responsibilities and dream about escaping, this is a big thing for men, we dream about escaping. We dream about getting out of the pressure cooker of life. Sometimes as a man, I find that my dreams are about getting a million dollars and just leaving and enjoying a nice life by the lake somewhere, drinking coffee every morning and just making life easy. But every man is called to reject passivity, which is what that would be. The reason men run from their responsibilities when they are under pressure is because they haven't yet learned to prize their servanthood over their selfishness. Men, my question for you this morning is, are you dying? Are you dying? Or are you trying to use your family so that your life can be better? Is your goal to use your wife so that she can serve your needs so you can do what you need to do and she can just kind of absorb the responsibilities in the home, and it's all kind of on her. 
as men are we willing to die? Here's the second thing. Spiritual direction. Spiritual direction. I'm really excited. We hired a new children's pastor. His name is Tyler White. We introduced him a couple weeks ago. Tyler is doing an awesome job already at Spring Valley. And I'm so glad that we have him in the position of children's pastor. But what needs to be crystal clear is that the spiritual climate of your home doesn't fall on Spring Valley. The youth department, the children's department, your elders, your leaders, your wife. Men, the spiritual climate of your home falls on you. Headship is the responsibility to lead your wife and family to live for God's glory. You've been placed in your home as the pastor to partner with your wife so that the family is about Jesus Christ. His name should be famous in your home. The man is responsible to work as a thermostat in the home. He sets the spiritual temperature so that the home does not center around video games, sports, TV, Twitter feeds, and Taylor Swift. Listen, I'm not down on Taylor Swift. But men, what environment in your home are you creating? What conversations are you having with your kids about what's most important in their lives? I'm just wanting you to know that men, we are the ones, and I'm not saying women can't absolutely come alongside and beat this drum with you. You'd be hearing me wrong if you're hearing that. But men, we are the one who are called to champion Jesus Christ in our homes. We are the ones who, to, who are to know where the kid's Bible is located because we use it regularly. Men, we're the ones who are called to make sure that the family is participating in the body of Christ. Hey, listen, the weather's nice and Little League's warming up, and I will just say this as bluntly as I know how. You are a bad leader if your family has prized the ball field over the body of Christ. That's bad leadership. You are not raising the next Derek Jeter. Your, your, your daughter isn't going to become the next gold medalist. Well, someone has to do it. It's probably not her. Your leadership is not just defined by your participation in the body of Christ, but it's certainly a measure of it. Men, we must personally go hard after Jesus. Are you going hard after Christ? Or are you watching your wife go hard after Christ? Are you carving out time in your day to be with Jesus? And listen, I know life gets busy. This is not about guilt, it's just about being honest. Are you going hard after Christ? Here's a challenge I always wrestle with as a spiritual leader. On a bigger stage like the church, it's my pursuit of Christ directly impacts my leadership in this place and my pursuit of Christ. More importantly than this, impacts my leadership at 700 Farmington Avenue, number 46. Men, you are called to go hard after Jesus. The people in your home should be hearing the name of Christ on your lips often. This means we initiate prayer. Joe, does that mean women can't initiate prayer? No, stop thinking those things. I'm just saying what men do. We initiate prayer. We initiate family devotions. We stop making excuses like, I don't know what to do. Do you know how to read? Do you know where the Bible is? Open it up, pick a story, and say, we're going to read this, and ask, what did you guys learn from that? Now, let me just be really honest. When we do family devotions and prayer at my house, 
You're like, Joe, you're the pastor. I'm sure you're really good at that. No, I'm not. It's a train wreck at my house. Do you think a revival breaks out at my house every time dad says, let's do devotions? Have you met an eight, a six, and a three-year-old before? They're not exactly like brimming with passion for Christ. We make a lot of jokes about poop during that time because for some reason Olivia becomes a comedian and Joseph and Lucy think she's the funniest person who ever lived when it's time to do devotions. We're not saying anything about perfection. We're just talking about initiating, leading, and saying this is what we do here. We're actually serious about Christ. I want to just say this word to our single moms, whether divorced or widowed. God cares deeply for you. God hears your prayers. He knows your tears. God knows the feelings of inadequacy you might be feeling. I'm not saying you should feel those. I'm not saying you are. But if you do struggle with feeling inadequate as a parent, Psalm 146.9 says that the Lord watches over the foreigner and he sustains the fatherless and the widow. To our single moms, whether divorced or widowed, I would say this. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Where a godly man is missing, God himself fills in the gaps. So many godly men and women who have changed the world for Christ have been raised by single parents. I am this morning talking about the ideal. A husband and a wife going hard after God with the men saying, it's my job to make sure this family is about God's glory. But where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Because you know what the truth is? The ideal is lacking in every home. It's missing in my home. I trust God to fill in the gaps where I'm failing. That is not an excuse for me to be passive. That's not an excuse for me to do nothing. But it's reality. God's filling in the gaps with all of our parenting, with all of our marriages. And yet, men, we must reject passivity and embrace our role as head. Here's the last thing. It's provision. Paul says that being in the head of the home is about provision. There are two verbs that describe what it means to provide. Feed is the word nourish. Cares is the word cherish. To nourish refers to parents providing for their children. To cherish your wife means to treat her with gentleness. It literally means to warm someone up. Oh, I'd like to warm my wife up. No, that's not what we're talking about. It literally means to warm someone up. The idea is to nurture your wife. Oftentimes we think women are the only ones who are supposed to nurture Actually, it's men who are called to be nurturing towards their spouse. Men, let's not kid ourselves into thinking we're good men because we put a roof over the head of our families and food in their bellies. Some of us come home after a long day and we feel like we've been med because we've gone out and we've worked the ground. Providing for your family is a good thing. But you know what? Prairie dogs and penguins also put a roof over their family's head and food in their bellies. This is not the defining moment of manhood. Also, a man in a season of unemployment does not cease to be a man. Who makes the most money is not the issue here. That would be an adventure and missing the point. 
Tenderly nourishing and nurturing your wife is about her desires and gifts. There are a lot of men who give their wives the world materially, but don't provide them with affection, help them live out their purpose, and encourage their God-given desires. Two examples from my own life how I did try to do this with Cheryl. In our family, Cheryl has the desire to be home with our kids until they're all in school. That's super important to her. To be honest, it wasn't that important to me when we got married, but it was important to her. So we have said no as a family to a lot of things so that we can say yes to that desire in her. A couple years ago, Cheryl talked to me about putting our kids in private school, and I immediately thought about what men? The budget. And I thought, we're not doing that. We have these public schools. They may not be that great, but they'll go there. They're going to be fine. And listen, this is not about the private school, public school debate or homeschool. We're not talking about that either. We're just talking about nurturing the desires of your spouse. I didn't really want my kids to go to Christian school. I didn't really think much about it, to be honest. I didn't have a plan. I failed as a leader there. But that's what Cheryl wanted. And so we've had to say no to a lot of things as a family so we could say yes to that. And there's been several times, men, lest you think I'm putting myself on a pedestal when Cheryl has asked for things and I should have been quicker and more proactive to provide those for her. Some of those are actually too painful to say publicly right now, so I won't. Trust me, they're there, though. This isn't about a woman getting whatever she wants from her husband. All the men said amen. It's about a man nurturing the desires of his wife and taking the initiative to find ways for her to have those desires fulfilled. So this is what heads do. They lay their lives down. They lead spiritually, and they nurture and provide for their wife. Let's close with this question. What should single men do? Is the essence of manhood being married? No. It'd be fair to make that conclusion because that's what we talked a lot about today. But the truth is, Jesus was a real man, and he never married. Paul was a real man, and as best we can tell, he wasn't married. I think for single men, you can express your unique design as a man even without a wife. As a single man, you can lay your life down for others. You can die to yourself. And you can make your life right now about killing your selfishness. Singleness is not an excuse to be selfish. Single men, it's an opportunity to practice dying. Single men, you can also invest spiritually and take the initiative to grow as a spiritual leader. You can be so far ahead if you are passionate for Christ now and not until God gives you more responsibilities later. Single men, you can provide by being generous and helpful with those who are struggling. It doesn't have to be all about you if you're single. Single men, this is the season to practice giving your life away. And you're still a man. And you can still please God as a man. Marriage is not the pinnacle of existence, neither is raising children. You are made in the image of God. You matter to God. And your life has significance and purpose as a single person, whether male or female. 
and you can still love and serve the Lord with your life and add value in every place God gives you influence. So what should we do in response to this message? Three things. Number one, ladies, expect your man to be one. Expect your man to be one. I'm not talking about nagging. I'm talking about encouraging, nudging, pointing out ways to your husband in a gracious, truthful, well-timed way where they can grow. But expect headship from your husband. Men, ask for feedback and change. I hope that's simple. I've encouraged you to do this in sermons before. Ask your spouse, where do I need to grow as a leader? Take notes and don't talk. Repent where she identifies sinful patterns in your life. I remember over Christmas time, Cheryl and I got to go on a date and uh, we just went out for coffee at Starbucks and we were in Buffalo and we were at a Starbucks on Transit Road real close to where I grew up and we were sitting at this little table in Starbucks and we were just kind of having this conversation about our life and our marriage and she just kind of, I kind of brought up this little hobby I had and she just kind of said, you know, I'm not sure you should do that every week. And I'm like, what? I love that. And then she just kind of told me, she said, when you're gone during that time, you miss the part of the day where Joseph is home the most during the week. And she said, you're missing out on some time to invest in him. That wasn't a guilt trip at all. That was feedback. That was love. That was helping because it was helpful. She didn't crush me. She didn't call me selfish. She didn't call me a jerk. She just said, here's an area of your life where maybe you're not dying as quickly as you should. Don't be defensive, men. Every one of us, look to the real man, Jesus. That's who we need. That's who we need. We need Jesus. Every one of us needs a man in our life. We need Christ. We need Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus in the troubled spots in your marriage. Look to Jesus when you're raising your kids. Look to Jesus when work is hard. Men, look to Jesus when you want to run and cut bait because you are in the pressure cooker of life. Look at the man who said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Look to Jesus when your marriage needs a strong dose of forgiveness. Look to Jesus when someone has wronged you and you need to forgive. Look to Jesus to see what real love looks like. Look to Jesus. He's who we need. Let's stand together this morning.
Lord, we need you. We sang about it this morning. Lord, in my preparation of this message, once again became obvious to me that I need you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that just consistently says we need Jesus. I pray for the men of Spring Valley Community Church. I pray that we would be men. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul actually tells the Corinthians, act like men. Help us not to act like little boys. Help us not to act like animals. Help us to act like men. Help us not to make our lives about us, but about the good of others. God, I pray that the women in this church, whether it's our spouses or others, would be blessed because there are many godly men in this place. Men who lay their lives down for their families, for their friends, for people they don't even know that well. Lord God, I pray for a renewed spirit of masculinity defined by servanthood in this place. More of you, Jesus, less of us. Lord, I pray for our ladies, especially those who have been mistreated because of passages like this. Heal their hearts, Lord. And Lord, if any of those men in this room have mistreated their wives, hurt them, been verbally abusive, been demeaning, bring that man under the strong conviction of the Holy Spirit. Bring lazy men under the strong conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, we need you.